started, perhaps even when I open my eyes after prayer, more will be here. We can only pray. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God, we come before you with humbled hearts. We thank you for this opportunity this morning to continue to read and study this second letter from Peter to a congregation that needed the truth as opposed to the fact, as opposed to the myths, Lord. Pray that you would bolster all our faith this morning, that you would supplement our faith as well with godliness as we continue to reflect on your goodness to us and the power of your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So last week we began in Second Peter because uh, thought Second Peter and Jude work well together. In fact, Second Peter chapter 2 quotes much of Jude uh, in, um, yeah, like I said, in chapter 2. So I'm going to read the first chapter, and we looked at verses 1 through 15 last week. We will focus our time on 16 through 21, but it's good to read 16 through 21 in the context of the whole chapter. So this is the Word of God. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, you see in the handout there, where we are in the, uh, the lesson, the series, we looked last week at Paul's opening and his exhortation for them to uh, perfect their faith, and we, see, we saw again uh, his farewell. He said that he is 
He's going to put off his body very soon. So he knows he's going to die. Remember the twofold purpose from last week, the twofold purpose of this letter. Does anyone recall one of those purposes or one aspect of that twofold purpose? What does Peter get? What is he trying to get at? primary purpose is to exhort them to make their calling and election sure, and to supplement their faith, knowing that they have been given all this grace from God. They are then to, in Paul's language, work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And perhaps in the, just another side of the same coin, one way to do this is to warn them of the false teaching. So that's what will occupy chapter 2. But he is going to, he's going to leave them very soon, and he wants them to be reminded of the gospel truths. Over and over again, he talks about the necessity of this reminder. But he leads with grace. Remember, we camped out at verse 3 for a while last week that God's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have everything we need in the Word of God that we might live in a manner that is pleasing to Him. This is all of grace. There are some verses here that might lead one to think, well, here now Peter is emphasizing, oh, kind of works righteousness, you know, and entering the kingdom of God if we practice these qualities, but no, we're just talking about the outworking of the faith. A, a faith, as James would say, is not a dead faith. It's an alive faith. It's lively. It's living. It's active because it's been given by the Word and Spirit. So in chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, there is, I wouldn't say a contrast between... Um, this transfiguration that we're going to talk about and truth. But there's a contrast between tricks, cleverly devised myths, and truth. So, you know, October, trick or treat, no tricks, just truth. Or no myths, but focus on the majesty of God. What is Peter up against here that moves him to say that we are not following myths. Verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's going to pick this up primarily in uh, chapter 3. He is combating this belief that's quite prominent, same thing actually that Paul picks up in um, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, this idea that the day of the Lord has already come. Or, in Peter's case, the day of the Lord will never come. So he is combating that falsehood. And he says in verse 16, We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christ has come. He has come in power. We saw that with the incarnation. We see even that he came to uh, his father in power. He came as king to the heavenly uh, realities. He came with power. We saw the power in his earthly, in his, in his earthly ministry with miracle after miracle, signs and wonders and incredible things he was doing. And Peter saying, we made those things known to you. This is in direct contrast to the cleverly devised myths that you must be hearing. One of which being that the day of the Lord is not going to come or the day of the Lord has already come. Is that a pretty important uh, issue to, to um, or debate to be engaged in whether or not the Lord will come? Jackie, you're nodding your head. That's pretty important. Isn't it one of the things that we confess in the Apostles' Creed? We confess that he has come and that he will come again to judge the quick and the, and the dead, the living and the dead. He has come. His incarnation is, you could even say, um, evidence of a future coming, because he told you he's going to come. But regrettably, we have many people today saying, well, the Lord's not going to come, or um, he has already come. How despairing is that if he has already come? You you already missed it. He came and you weren't among those that he brought with him. Or, despairing as well would be that he'll never come. And then this is all there is. And it's good. There's some good things here. This is our Father's world. And he has given us great gifts. But do do not our hearts long for something more? So Peter is not addressing just some insignificant conflict, controversy. It really has uh, great relevance to Peter's life and to those that he's writing to, to their lives as well. Of course, whether or not the Lord has already come is, uh, is just one uh, debate among many, one issue among many that people argue about. There are many myths, many cleverly devised myths. What do you think are some cleverly devised myths that you hear today that you would need uh, you know, the, the rock-solid Word of God to help you to combat. The, the more general question is, what false teachings are you hearing these days? If it's not, you know, the Lord hasn't come, won't come, you might hear that, really from unbelievers. 
there are some, there are, there are, there's a group of professing Christians uh, that believe that Christ has already come. He's already established his second coming reign and the resurrection has already taken place. But that's clearly contrary to Scripture. But what are some cleverly devised myths? So they're cleverly devised. That means they, there's, some, there's, a sound, there's a, an apparent soundness to them. You can't hear them and say, well, that's just obviously stupid. Clearly, no, no Christian is going to believe that. There's some appearance of light. What are some things that you're hearing these days? The health and wealth gospel? Quote gospel? Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's, you know, let's talk about that for a moment. What is the appearance of light in the health and wealth gospel? What about it that sounds, looks good? Okay. So are there passages of Scripture that would testify to the abundant blessings of God and love for His people and His desire to lavish these blessings upon His people? Are these blessings only spiritual? So they meet the, the earthly as well, don't they? They meet the body, not just the soul. Okay? By His wounds we are healed. So there's an appearance of light to the health and wealth gospel. Look at all these passages. God created the body. He loved the body. Why would he not want health for the body? Even in in 3 John, there's that uh, prayer that all would go well, not just with spirit, but with body. Clearly, God wants to bless the body. He wants you to live that abundant life. He came that you would have life and life to the full. Okay? Of course, there's an overemphasis on one or a misunderstanding of the plenary blessings of God. And it's a denial of, there's a denial of, you know, the, the suffering that attends the Christian way. Okay? Are there other cleverly devised myths that Christians struggle with, that are faced with today? There's the view that everyone will be saved. Okay, now tell me where's the the appearance of light in that? Okay, doesn't God love his creatures? Well, of course. Doesn't God want people to be saved? Well, of course. Would a God of love not save everyone? Well, he, he, could, he could save everyone, couldn't he? Okay. So, uh, you have passages like John 3.16, sometimes um, misunderstood. For God to love the world, okay, that he gave his only begotten son. And on and on, you guys know the verse. So, there is that, that universalism. And, in fact... Paul says that God is reconciling the world to himself. 
So where's the, um, where's the misunderstanding in that cleverly devised myth? You can answer this or someone else can. Basically, the other side that helps us to balance the biblical view. So the fact of election and the fact that Jesus spoke of hell, and there's a distinction, as I'll be preaching this morning, there's a distinction between the, uh, the saved and the non-saved, the beloved and the non-beloved. Yes. So I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So that exclusivity by nature uh, says there's, there's not more than one path. Even though I think I saw is one of the Ligonier survey results. You guys mentioned that a couple weeks ago. Um, every two years they have the survey. And I don't remember the exact uh, percentage of evangelical adults who believe that um, there's more than one way to Jesus, but I think it was in the um, 60s, 50s or 60s, something like that. Nick, were you going to give us another cleverly devised myth, or were you going to combat? What were you going to do? There you go. Yeah, Second Peter three nine. God, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Okay. Well, well observed. Okay. Any? Well, maybe one more cleverly devised myth. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, and and Paul picks that up, doesn't he? Especially in Romans six, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound, may never be? The appearance of light in that cleverly devised myth. What would that be? Where does where does it look good or looks consonant with the word of God? God's a gracious God. When he forgives you, does he forgive you of only past sins? No. It's not just that he forgives you for past sins, but also present and future sins. All the sins we will ever commit in thought, word, and deed, sins of omission, sins of commission, public sins, private sins, on and on. All of these are covered by the blood of Jesus. So you can see how someone says, well, if all my future sins are going to be covered, I have grace in the future. It really doesn't matter if I can, it doesn't matter how I live. 
I'm going to get grace then, so I can, get, I can have the pleasures of the sin and the enjoyment of full atonement, can it be? Now, where does that cleverly devised myth go wrong? Okay, Jesus died that, to make us holy, and if we keep sinning, we are really denying uh, a fruit of his work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a truly changed heart wants to follow the Christ who died for you. And he says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. You don't want to keep living in a way, in the way that warranted his going to the cross. It was a brutal death. Agonizing. Okay. So looking at these verses, how does Peter combat the claim that he and the other apostles follow myths. Essentially, that's, that's the accusation against him and the other apostles. You guys are following a myth. And he says, no, we're not following cleverly devised myths. So how does he combat that accusation? He does so two ways, and I will um, only accept one of them right now. How does he combat this idea that they are following cleverly devised myths? They were eyewitnesses, yes. We didn't follow cleverly devised myths. We were there for crying out loud. We saw with our own eyes. We heard this very voice born from heaven. This is my beloved son. We were there. We heard it all. Where, where was he? Where were they? Well, more on that in just a minute. Okay. So, we see then the value of eyewitness testimony. The value of experiences. The value of valid experiences. Just because you have an experience doesn't mean it's worth telling or that it is um, harmonious with the truth. We know that. But of course, we want to. Um, when we. The, the, the Bible is full of um, the importance of eyewitness testimony. You couldn't. You, you had to have two or three witnesses in the Old Testament. And. Paul picks up that principle as well in the New Testament in order to confirm maybe an injustice committed by someone. That needs to be corroborated by two or three witnesses. So eyewitness testimony is important. We saw also in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that uh, there were many people that Christ appeared to. And Paul says, you could, they're still alive. If you want to talk with them, they're, they're around. You can talk with them. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. So eyewitnesses are important. 
we often uh, will discount someone's belief, someone's claim, if that person wasn't there. Well, were you there? Did you, did you hear it? What did you hear? And so there's that, um, even that, that challenge assumes the importance of eyewitness testimony. Okay. Is eyewitness testimony sufficient to dispel unbelief or to create belief? Is eyewitness testimony sufficient? Is it enough to dispel unbelief, to disabuse you of your unbelief, or to create belief? Shaking your head no. Okay? So someone can witness something but not believe it or not believe how it is to be understood? Did everyone, let's just take uh, uh, John 11, Lazarus. Let's take him as an example. He was raised from the dead. Remember, Jesus waited four days, waited for him to be you know, dead, really dead. And the Jewish mindset back then was that uh, the spirit hovered over the body for a period of three days. And uh, there there's a possibility that the Spirit could, you know, get back in on that body. <laughs> well, here's four, day four, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And what happens at the end of John 11 and, and the beginning of chapter 12? What, are, what do some people try to do to, to Lazarus? They try to kill him. You just, you're trying to kill the guy who was raised from the dead? What's that all about? Why would you do that? Sometimes, uh, when, well, when uh, Christ appeared to Paul. Not everyone believed. Some thought it was just you know, some loud noise and some thunder and something going on in the sky. So they, they were eyewitnesses to something really exciting, something dramatic, something true, but they did not interpret that event properly. Did everyone believe in Jesus Christ who, was, who died and was raised from the dead? No. There were many eyewitnesses to the miracles that he performed. And some people wanted to pick up stones and throw them at him. Some believed. Not everyone did. So eyewitness testimony is not sufficient either to dispel unbelief or to create belief. What must there be then if your experience alone is insufficient? If you're seeing it with your own eyeballs or hearing it with your own ears is not enough, what must there be? And now this is the second answer to this question of how does Peter combat the claim that he and the other apostles followed cleverly devised myths? Combated it with eyewitness testimony? What else? It's right there, by the way. In those verses, you'll find it. Prophetic word. Okay. The word of God. So, verses 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed 
to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we have then the prophetic word, which is really the important thing that Peter wants to uh, remind his uh, readers of, his prophetic word. Remember, in the previous 15 verses, the emphasis has been on knowledge. It's been, it was three or four times in just those 15 verses when Peter is emphasizing knowledge. He wants them to know. And yes, this knowledge is granted to them. Where do we get this knowledge? How do we know rightly? It is the prophetic word. So I'm going to read one passage of Scripture, and then I'm going to have two volunteers, one read one passage and one read another passage. So I'll just take uh, one volunteer now to read, when it's time, Isaiah 59, 21. Greta's got Isaiah 59, 21. I, have an, I need another volunteer to read for us. Second Samuel twenty three two. Second Samuel twenty three two. Elizabeth, okay. So I'm going to read Jeremiah one nine. God's words are found in the prophet's words. That's the point here. God's words are found in the prophet's words. Jeremiah one nine. Then the Lord put out His hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Why does the Lord put out his hand and touch Jeremiah's mouth? Why not his head? Why not his hands? Why not his feet? Why not his armpits or his back, his toes? Why the mouth? Because he will be speaking. That will be his primary job, his divine calling, it'll be to communicate the word of the Lord. And he will do that through his mouth, but also through the pen. Okay? So Isaiah 59, 21. Greta? Was that three or so times in just that verse? The emphasis is on the mouth. And that's Isaiah. Okay, we have Second Samuel twenty-three two. Elizabeth. Do you know who is saying that? David. The Spirit of the Lord speaks. Is it by me? Through me? What is it? Yeah. Evidence of the Holy Spirit, by the way. So the Holy Spirit speaks by David. So we have uh, men who are speaking, and they are speaking the word of the Lord, the prophecy. Now we have two terms in Scripture uh, that we want to summarize when it comes to the word of God. We have 
the doctrine of inspiration and the doctrine of interpretation. The doctrine of inspiration is that God breathed out His Word. So the source of the Word is divine. It's not that God had given someone an impression. You know, I feel inspired to paint a painting. It's not that kind of thing. It's that the very words of God find their expression on uh, words of a page or uh, through the mouth of a prophet, such that everything that the prophet says or wrote is exactly what God had intended to be said or written. The classic text for this is 2 Timothy 3, for all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent or complete, equipped for every good work. The word of man does not equip you for every good work. It is the word of God. The word of man does not teach you properly, does not rebuke you rightly, does not correct you rightly or train you properly. It's the word of God. In our Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 4, we read, The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. So the Holy Scripture has an authority such that to deny it is to deny God. To disbelieve it is to disbelieve God. Such that to obey it is to obey God. To believe it is to believe God. So what's the basis of our obedience? What's the basis of our belief? It's not the testimony of any man or church. So, the Pope doesn't get to tell us what we ought to believe or uh, obey. The church, uh, just any old person or any collection of churches, any denomination, it's not like the PCA says, you know, we are, we are the authority. Everything we say goes. You must believe every word that proceeds from our denominational uh, expressions wherever they're found, by Faith Magazine, you know, in our Presbyterial decisions, General Assembly decisions. No, 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 no. We believe the Word of God because it is the Word of God. Now, we don't have time today to talk about how um, that might sound. It might sound circular to you. And in one sense, it is, and you're right. But it's a kind of circularity that is virtuous, that is pleasant, that is inescapable, actually, because we all have some authority. There's always some basis on which we are um, depending for our um, truth claims and our conduct. So we believe Scripture is authoritative because it is the Word of God. It's not the Word of a man or the Word of a church. 
Then there's also the doctrine of inspiration, and, or a doctrine of interpretation. The Confession of Faith speaks of this in the same chapter, but section 9. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. The infallible rule of interpretation. So the rule of interpretation that is always without error, that always gets it right, is the Scripture itself. So how do we understand Scripture? By knowing Scripture. And the, this um, section acknowledges that there are some places that are difficult to understand. And I mentioned last week that Peter himself says in chapter 3 that there are some things that Paul writes that are really difficult to understand. Things that people twist as they do with the other scriptures. What's interesting about that, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but Peter equates Paul's writings with other scriptures, which is fascinating because at this time, maybe Paul hadn't written all the stuff that he is going to write, though he's nearing the end. So even, Peter, even in Peter's time, he knew that Paul, who's ministering over there, over here, is writing Scripture. It's not just the words of a man, it's the words of God. So, just from those two sections of the Confession of Faith, we see again and again the call to the Word of God. A call to read, and to read well, and to read a lot, and to memorize, to reflect on this Word of God. Now, we come to this language of prophetic word more fully confirmed. Remember the event that Peter is referring to in the preceding verses. It's the mount, it's the transfiguration. Do you guys remember who was up on that mountain with Jesus? Clearly Peter was among them. We were eyewitnesses. James and John. So Peter, James, and John ascend this mountain, and they see Jesus transfigured. They see him gloriously radiant, you know, refulgent, and just bright, shining as the sun. They, they just get a, a glimpse of the glory of Christ. And you have Moses and Elijah as well with him. Or Peter says, it's good that you got, it's good that we're here. Let's just set up camp here. I'll make a booth for you. Make a booth for you, Elijah. Moses, we'll make a booth for you. We'll get three booths. And we'll just enjoy this mountaintop experience. At the end of it all, Jesus tells them to do what? About the about what they saw. Keep it a secret. Oh man, what a secret that must have been for Peter. I have to come down this mountain and I can't tell anyone about this thing? I have to wait. There will be a time, obviously, he tells about it here. 
There will be a time. Does Jesus tell him, don't say anything about it because it's not really happening? It's only partially true. I've got to tell you the, the rest of the story. I've got to tell you where, where there was a bit of myth, where I um, did some divine magic on you and led you to believe something that actually wasn't true. No, of course not. So the transfiguration was a, a magnificent event. It was true. And it was rightly understood, though perhaps impartially understood by Peter, James, and John. Not perhaps. They, they didn't know everything they were seeing. But here Peter says, we have that event, okay? But we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So what are the advantages, before we focus on the prophetic word more fully confirmed, what are the advantages of the transfiguration? What was the good that came out of the transfiguration? For Peter, James, and John. Confirmation that he was the Messiah. That's a pretty good thing. He is certainly other than what some have supposed him to be. Would you like to see Jesus transfigured? You know, before he was raised from the dead, of course. Would you have wanted that experience? Would you have kept that experience with you for your whole life? Of course. So there was a blessing of truly experiencing Jesus glorified in some sense. You know, this is obviously pre-resurrection glorification, just a taste. It's a blessing. Peter, James, and John didn't deserve to see Jesus this way. What they deserve is, you know, what could have happened to Isaiah when he saw the Lord, who was holy, holy, holy. Would have been uh, ruined, undone. Yes, it could have yes, it confirmed their hearts. This is what's there will be glorification. In fact, Jesus tells you know, Peter in John twenty one and he he tells them that they will they will die. Um, they will suffer. So perhaps Peter had even this um, experience as one support for his own soul in the face of great trial, of death. You also get the blessing of seeing Elijah and Moses. Okay, what are the limits? What are some limits of the transfiguration? Um, The transfiguration doesn't take us far enough in uh, our understanding of the Lord and in his ways and what is um, our future. 
nor even of the person of Christ. So there are some, it takes us to a certain point. It's an appetizer, if you will. It's not the full meal. A testimony that must be matched up with the prophetic word? Um, well, Peter does make that point, doesn't he? So, yes. So I wasn't exactly thinking that. But it is true that um, as great as an event as it was, it was not on that event that these men were to rest their their hope, put their trust. Obviously, in the uh, this is pre-cross, uh, and this is of course pre-resurrection. So, just in the life of Jesus's two estates of humiliation, then exaltation, this takes us to a certain point. But that's not Jesus in all his glory. And the event itself is good as far as it goes. It's good for Peter, James, and John to experience this. Not everyone is going to experience this transfiguration. And that's okay. Not everyone had to experience this transfiguration. The other apostles didn't receive this experience. Remember, they were left out. But you could say, using Peter's own words, that they have a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, even though they didn't experience the transfiguration. So there needs to be something um, more lasting, something enduring, something uh, more stable than a glorious experience, something more stable than a gloriously redemptive act. And that's what Peter speaks of. It is this word that is more fully confirmed. So we're just talking generally about the word and men. What can you expect to come from the mouth of just any individual? I'm not talking about prophets here. I'm just talking about just a, just a person who speaks. What can you assume will be? Uh, what can you assume about that person's speech over the course of you know his or her whole life? Are they going to get things right? Are they going to get things wrong? Their speech will be tainted by sin. Okay. Even those things that they get right, they won't um, explain in full detail or they might have missed a certain angle. Even those matters uh, that we are particularly skillful at knowing, we don't know perfectly. And sometimes we don't know how those aspects fit with everything else in 
uh, everything else that can be known. What can we expect of those men who speak only by themselves? That is, apart from the Spirit of God. Okay. Their speech can mislead. The heart of man is deceitful. Above all things, who can know it? Okay. Desperately wicked. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book on the Holy Spirit, which I read in anticipation of November's, November, December's ABF series on the Holy Spirit. It's very good, by the way. He says, The activity of God does not minimize the individuality of the human authors. In fact, the reverse is the case. Since the personalities of the human authors appear to be stamped all over the finished product, when the Spirit comes, he clothes himself with those on whose lives he descends. So we have a couple truths here, observations from this quote. It says from verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, man, but men spoke from God. So men truly did speak from God. When you read Peter's writings, they're different from Paul's writings. The more you read Paul's writings, you get a flavor for how, uh, how he writes. Uh, the kinds of things that Paul would say, the kinds of words he uses, some of, his favorite, some of his favorite words, like in Christo, like in Christ. He loved that, he loved that uh, combination. You read John, you read Samuel, you read the book of Job. There are different emphases, different styles, different personalities through all of the writings of Scripture. Men spoke. Okay. But he says, Ferguson says, it's not that the individuality is removed, that it's minimized, but the reverse is the case. The personalities of the authors are all over the place. You know that there's more than one human author of the books of the Bible. When the Spirit comes, he clothes himself with those on whose lives he descends. But what's significant about every writing of Scripture is it's clothed with the inspiration of the Spirit. Every Scripture, every verse comes from God. Every verse has that stamp of um, breath from the Lord. Say, this is the Word of God. What does Jesus say in John 10? The sheep hear my voice. The sheep acknowledge their, the voice of the shepherd. And you can acknowledge that whether you are in Jude or Obadiah, Leviticus, Revelation, the Psalms, it's all the word of God. 
What can we expect of men who speak from God? Is it right for us to say, well, Peter's a sinner, Paul's a sinner, John's a sinner. And so, yes, there is inspiration, but that inspiration also has to compete with the sinfulness of Peter, John, and on and on. And so there's going to be mixture of truth and error. So the Spirit's going to get them, you know, 60%, 70%, 80% accuracy, but really, that nasty heart of Peter's just gets in the way. No. Not if they are carried along by the Holy Spirit. If every you know, stroke of the pen, every jot and tittle is placed there by the divine author, the Spirit himself. So the, the king's heart is in um, the Lord's hand, like a stream of water. He turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 21.1. The Lord directs all things according to the counsel of his will. If he employs, if, if he sovereignly directs all the actions all the sinful and good actions of hearts that are tainted with sin. If he can do all that for his glory, for his divine purpose, to carry out his will that cannot ever be thwarted, if he can do that, surely he can guide men to write his word exactly as he intended. Now, if the Spirit is not working in these men's lives, then what you're going to get is error and truth with error. You'll probably get some, some right things, but not properly understood. But you don't have men alone writing this. You have the Word of God. But it's not just that um, men are being guided by the Spirit. We don't need, you could say, the Spirit to write an accurate grocery list. You can get things right. You can have proper, you know, if your husband needs to get some stuff at the store, your wife writes you the, the list, and it's accurate. I guess you could say, well, thank you, Lord, for guiding my wife to write down these words, to give these words to me, so I can get all the items that I need to get. That's not the doctrine of inspiration. I mean, you can, even, an, even an unbeliever can write something down and speak something without error. But inspiration means that it comes with the divine authority, such that, again, to disbelieve or disobey is to disbelieve or disobey God. It comes with power. It comes with the power to change lives. No word of man can do that. And no experience, as great as the transfiguration was, no experience in itself is going to be that solid basis on which you live your life. Peter needed 
the fullness of the revelation by the Holy Spirit. So in the last minute, I'll give you the point, I'll give you one application. If this is what the Word of God is, let's rephrase that, since this is what the Word of God is, we must be in the Word of God. And not just we must be in the Word of God, but we must diligently allow the Word of God to be in us, to let the Word of Christ dwell richly in our hearts to hide God's word in our heart that we might not sin against him. A lot of good books out there. I've read a lot of them this year. And to various, various degrees, they offer uh, great insight. But I am not to major on those minor books. Nor are you. Read all the books you want to read, but major in the Bible. Spend your time there. That's the Word of God. Those six, six books of the Bible. That's what should have your priority. That's what you should be reading when you wake up or when you can find time in the lunch break or when you go before you go to sleep. You find time, carve it out, so that you don't neglect this very voice of God. Because your life depends on it. God has granted you all things that pertain to life and God, and that is through his divine power, according to the knowledge of him. You must know. How can you know if you don't read? So read, read well, read prayerfully, read confidently that this is the word of God for you and for all his people for all generations until he comes again, and he certainly shall. All right, let's pray. A wonderful God, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to consider it. Lord, we always need reminders to return to your word because we are so often given to our own word, our own authorities, or the words of, of men, those who who speak at length about various societal, political, ecclesiastical, domestic matters, Lord. We require your wisdom from above. Help us, Lord, to appreciate it more and more as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Amen.